Hello and welcome to Harlan First and Monroe Chapel United Methodist Church's Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Mike Agnew, and good to have you tuning in. We are continuing our series of sermons in which we are looking at some of the controversial writings of the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul is considered by many to be the most influential person in Christian history, second only to Jesus. His writings have inspired millions of people in his lifetime and since. He's written such great things as the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. And he has helped many people to live out a Christian life and to know what it means to follow Jesus. Nonetheless, Paul is human. He's not perfect. He's inspired by God, but he's not perfect. The same with his writings. They are inspired, but not perfect. And there's a big difference between inspiration and perfection. So two weeks ago, we looked at a couple of his letters where he was upset and he crossed a line in his arguments. Then last week, we took a look at a time in Romans, his letter to the Romans, where many people today misinterpret what he writes, and they teach the exact opposite of what he was trying to say. Oftentimes we do that because we don't read the whole letter. We read only a part of the letter. Well, today we're going to look at another example of when people have misunderstood Paul, but understandably so. We're looking at Paul's view of women. And if you're familiar at all with Paul's view of women, you know that it is indeed controversial. The scriptures that this is based on are 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 through 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 to 35, and 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. And uh, these verses are also available to you on the bulletin, which is available on our website, harlanmethodist.com if you want to look those up. But in these scriptures, Paul seems to be saying flat out, black and white, that women should be silent in church. Let me summarize real quick for you what these scriptures are saying. In 1 Corinthians 11, he is stating that women should cover their heads when they pray or prophesy in church. And uh, because, because man is the reflection of God, but woman is the reflection of man. And therefore, because of the very nature of things, men have short hair, women have long hair, uh, women should have their faces covered. Then in chapter 14, he states that women should be silent in church. He does not permit a woman to speak in church. If they have questions, they are to ask their husbands at home. And then in 1 Timothy 2, same thing. He says women should be silent in church, except he goes on a little further, and he states that that uh, Adam was created first, not Eve, and Eve was the one who was deceived. Women should not braid their hair. They should not adorn their hair with gold or pearls. He goes on to say that, that women will be saved, however, through childbearing. Oh, my goodness. No wonder some people don't like Paul, you know? It just sounds like on the surface that this is really clear that women are not welcome at church, or that if they are there, that they need to cover their faces and they need to be silent. So, there is no secret that the Bible has been harsh to women. Not the Bible itself, although actually you can see that in there in some Bible stories. 
But most of history has been unkind to women. In many of the Old Testament Bible stories, women are left unnamed. They oftentimes are objects of ridicule, harassment, abandonment, and are generally treated as property, less than full human beings. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus changes that some in his ministry as he seeks to include women. He visits with the Samaritan woman and makes her an evangelist. He, in it states on numerous occasions that in addition to the 12 disciples, there are many other disciples or followers of Christ, including many women. Mary Magdalene, who is considered an apostle to the apostles. So, it's really surprising that Paul would go the opposite direction and kind of move backward. And it's especially surprising because in his writings and Paul's writings throughout the New Testament, he assumes that women are leaders in the church and he actually works with women who are leaders in the church. You don't hear a lot about it. You have to kind of look at the end of some of his letters. In many of his letters at the end, he gives greetings to various people, and usually we just kind of skim through those. But we see in there that Paul works with quite a few women leaders in the church, including Andronicus and Junia. Junia, he calls an apostle to the apostles. She must have been a prominent leader in the church. Unfortunately, uh, church, the church in subsequent centuries, changed her name to Junius, which is a male name. And so for many, many years, people thought that this was a man. Now, in recent times, her name has been recovered, and we see that it is a female leader in the church. We also have Phoebe, who is mentioned as being a deacon in the church. We have Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife team. And interestingly enough, Priscilla, the woman, is mentioned first. Usually the more prominent of the two people are mentioned first, which leads us to believe that she was the more prominent leader of the two of them. In addition, we have a story in the New Testament where Priscilla has authority over a man, which if you read the scriptures, one of them says that that a woman must not teach or have authority over a man. And this in this story in the New Testament, Priscilla has authority over man. He's been baptized, but he hasn't received the Holy Spirit, and so she helps him to receive the Holy Spirit. So Paul works with women leaders in the church, so something is not right here. There, there's something inconsistent. Some churches believe that these scriptures that talk about women being silent are meant for all women for all times, and that uh, we should all follow them. I'm talking about denominations that that will not ordain women, or allow women to serve on committees, or to lead a service, even as a fill-in, to let them lead a worship service, for fear that they might be preaching and having authority over men. And yet, even these denominations don't really follow these scriptures completely, because if they followed them completely, women wouldn't be allowed to speak at all. They wouldn't be able to teach children or women or anyone. So what's going on here? Well, there's more than meets the eye. So we're going to go, we're going to go on an investigation into these scriptures and see what's going on beneath the surface. So first, 1 Corinthians Chapter 11, verses 3 through 16. This is the one where Paul says that women should cover their heads in worship because man is the 
reflection of God, but woman is a reflection of man. So there's something cultural going on here. It's not meant for all women for all times. But there's a cultural thing going on here. It is well known, for instance, that in those days, Roman women would cover their heads when they're out in public, and that Jewish married women would cover their heads when they're out in public as a sign of respect. If their heads were uncovered, it was a sign of promiscuity, uh, in part because if they had flowing hair, that was considered to be associated with pagan worship of other gods and goddesses. We'll get into that a little bit later. But basically, Paul is just advocating what is customary of the time, and he is not wanting people to engage in practices that would remind them of pagan worship. So we're not going to spend much time on this scripture because they kind of build on each other. So let's go right on into 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 through 35. This is where Paul states that women should not speak in church. If they have a question, they should ask their husbands at home. Couple things here. First, there are some scholars that believe that this text might not actually be original to Paul, that this might be a later edition. However, we don't know that for sure. There's no way to know that, so we really need to deal with it. So, one thing that you need to know is that 1 Corinthians is not actually Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. No, he wrote another letter earlier on that did not survive, so we don't have it. But in chapter 5, he references this letter. And then in chapter 7, he references that they had responded to him. So evidently, he wrote at least one letter to them before this, and then they wrote him back. And now the first Corinthians that we have is his response to their response to him. So when we're reading it, it's like we're listening in on a telephone conversation where we can only hear one side of the conversation. So I want you to keep that in mind. As he's going through his letter, he is answering questions and issues that they've brought up in their letter. Now, have you ever had a letter or an email sent to you that had a number of different questions in it? If you had an email like that, because usually it's email nowadays, if you had an email with a bunch of questions, when you respond, you might do something like you might cut and paste each question into your reply and then give an answer to it. You know, cutting and pasting is kind of like the 21st century example of quoting somebody. That just keeps it straight and clear. Well, many scholars believe and have strong evidence that Paul would routinely do this, that he would quote something that was in their letter and then respond to it. But here's the problem. There's no way to know for sure when Paul is quoting someone or when he's speaking in his own voice. That's because in the original Greek that he wrote in, there were no punctuation marks. In fact, in the Greek language, they only have all capital letters. There are no spaces between words. There are no paragraphs. There are no periods. Nothing. So translation is a very difficult thing. And there's no way to know when he's quoting somebody. And so many scholars believe that he might be quoting them when he is writing these controversial passages in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, so keep that in mind. Because the other thing is that there's actually a missing word in 1 Corinthians 14 in most of our English translations. 
It's hard to believe, I know. But in the Greek, there is a word, actually we would call it a letter. It kind of looks like a letter N in the English language. It's not an N, but it kind of looks like that. And in those days, common usage for this letter was an exclamation of disbelief. You know, it'd be kind of like if somebody said something unbelievable to you and you responded by saying, what? That's an exclamation of disbelief. And it just so happens that one of these letters is located right after these controversial statements. So if you go back to 1 Corinthians 14 with this knowledge in hand, and you assume that the controversial statements about women being quiet are actually a quotation of what they said, and then right afterwards he says, what? And then continues on and says, so did God's word originate with you? It makes a little more sense. This is one possibility. We don't know for sure, but this is one possibility. All right, let's go to the last one, 1 Timothy chapter 2, the most embarrassing one, the one about how women will be saved through childbearing, uh, you know, that they have no authority, that they should remain silent, that they shouldn't braid their hairs or hair or, or adorn it with uh, gold or pearls because Adam was formed first, and it's just embarrassing. We wish that it didn't exist. When we read it, we ignore it, and we hope nobody else notices. <laughs> but if we want to vindicate Paul, we can't ignore this. So there is something going on behind, beyond the surface here. There's reason to believe he's not giving a blanket statement saying that all women should be silent in church. Because first of all, when we go to the beginning of his letter to 1 Timothy, he writes that there are certain people coming to the church that Timothy is overseeing in Ephesus. There are certain people coming to the church teaching things that they don't know about anything about, teaching things that they shouldn't be teaching. Okay, so that's a good a bit that's a good bit of information. Now there's reason to believe that at least one or more of these could have been a woman. Why? Well, because this is a church in Ephesus. And in order to understand it, we need to look a little more into Ephesus. So let's go to Acts chapter 19, because in Acts chapter 19, Paul actually visits Ephesus and preaches there. And we learn that while he was there, he had great success in preaching. Numerous people were converting to the faith. Many people who practiced sorcery, uh, many people who worshipped idols, they were abandoning their idols. They were burning occultic scrolls. I mean, it was like a modern-day revival. But the problem is the artisans and the blacksmiths of the community, whose business it was to make idols to their gods and goddesses, weren't too happy that their business was hurting. And so they rounded up a bunch of people and created a riot where the people literally uh, chanted for hours, Great is Artemis! Okay, well, who's Artemis? Well, Artemis is a goddess in Ephesus, a very popular female goddess of fertility in Ephesus. In fact, so popular that they had a huge temple dedicated to her. This temple was considered one of the original seven wonders of the world. And it was led by female priests. It was considered a female cult. And they would worship by adorning their hair with golden pearls and braiding it. And then engaging in sexual activity with people who came by. And that was considered worship. Okay, it's, it's a strange thing to us in our modern sensibilities, but it was 
more common back then than we realize. A couple of other things that they believed in the, in the Artemis religion was that women were formed first and then men. And they also believed that Artemis would protect them through the very life-threatening process of childbirth. All right. Now, taking that information back to our scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15, gives it new light. Because we know that there were certain people coming in and teaching things that were not appropriate. And he's saying that the women should be quiet leads us to believe that probably there were a number of women who were coming into the church trying to bring in some of their practices from Artemis worship, like braiding their hair, adorning them it with gold and pearls, and teaching things that ought not to be t- taught, such as that women were formed first, or that Artemis would protect people through the very life-threatening process of childbirth. And so Paul is saying these women need to be quiet. They need to be quiet And then he states that they shouldn't adorn their hair with gold or pearls or braid their hair. And then he corrects some of their teaching. He says, for Adam was formed first, not Eve. And women will be saved through childbearing. He doesn't say it because it's assumed, but he's saying Jesus will protect them through the life-threatening process of childbirth. Now, we know that people still died in childbirth, but he was just saying it's not Artemis. It's God who protects people through childbearing. Doesn't that sound quite a bit different than when we just read it on a surface level with our English translations? So I do not believe that Paul thought that all women should be quiet. He worked with women leaders in the church. For United Methodists, this issue has been settled over 50 years ago when we started ordaining women in the church for ministry. This is not an issue that is a huge debate in the United Methodist Church, but I go into all of this background information with you Because I want you to realize that very rarely when we read the Bibles do we have the whole story. Even in the parts of the Bible that seem very clear. And so that's why we need to be really weary whenever we hear someone say, the Bible clearly says about anything. Whenever anybody says that, Take it with a grain of salt, because chances are we don't know the whole story. I've heard some people say, well, if the Bible is the Word of God, shouldn't it be easy to understand? Shouldn't the most obvious surface-level meaning that we think it is be the right meaning? And I used to believe that, but no longer. No longer. We have to respect the fact that this is an ancient document from a world that's very different from our own, right? And so, therefore, we have to respect the fact that there are a lot of things going on in their lives and in their communities and in their cultures that we know nothing about. And only by doing our homework can we know some of those things. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to have a seminary degree or know Greek or Hebrew in order to know these things. It just means that we have to do our homework. We want to look at commentaries. We want to get a study Bible. We want to look into these things, the context and the culture and the assumptions of the day, Only then can we start to see what it is that they were really trying to say. And that helps us to have a more humble spirit with the Bible. Because quite frankly, when it comes to understanding the Bible, I'd rather realize that I don't understand something than to think that I do understand it and then to cause problems for people.
And so it's good to have that humble spirit with the scriptures. So again, as I said, if anybody wants to say the Bible clearly says, and then whatever they say after that, whatever it is, be weary and take what they say with a grain of salt, especially if they are using that argument to try to exclude somebody. Because chances are, there's more to the story. Amen. God bless and have a great week.